Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible people from around the planet and today's guest is actually not that far away from me, just in the neighbouring city of Nottingham. So Colin and I met, I think I was a keynote speaking on an online conference, I can't remember where it was now, uh, and I remember Colin was there and we ended up chatting thereafter. Uh, and Colin now does pretty much what I do. We're very much uh, passionate, both of us, around leadership, around culture and creating the right kinds of culture. Uh, but we've never actually worked together. So this is the first conversation that Colin and I are going to have around what our philosophy is around what a vibrant, rich culture should look like, what a healthy culture should look like, and spinning out of that what leadership needs to be there, driving this going forward. So Colin, you and I were just chatting away, and I'll just ask you how things were and what you're up to in your business, and you were explaining to me that you're now partnered it with someone who actually was working in the police service and he's very good at the networking side of things and you're very good at the delivery side of things and it's resonated so much with me because as a natural introvert I'm not one of these that goes out necessarily to these networking meetings I feel you know it's just out of my comfort zone in, in that sense and I'm always talking about stretching outside of that comfort zone but I've also made some decisions in my life that I can choose not to go there because I can choose to do things differently. Uh, and what I do is build one-on-one -on -one relationships with people. And when I do, I tend to have deeper relationships. Uh, and you were just talking about, you know, relationships in, in a team and, you know, challenging that traditional mindset or concept of what relationships are. Do you want to just tell the audience what we're talking about here? I'm like you, you know, that being around people, takes energy and that's not negative for me it, it I have to invest energy I have to be intentional about it I can do it and I love doing it but I need that space to recover that energy yeah but I've discovered like you when it's one-on-one -on -one, when it's when it's intimate which is a word that doesn't come up much in the organizational world but I think is a word we should be using more it's a word we're scared of HR has kind of made us scared of the word intimate <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, you're yeah, my but when you when you really embrace what intimacy is really about it is about that kind of connection it is about we were just talking about more than just connecting but being involved together having a reason to get together to be together to do something together that's why friendships really work that's why relationships in love really work but that's also why work relationships work their best when you can find those reasons and those reasons change over time and, and, and adapt and everything else. It's like going way beyond the sort of, uh, yeah, I know you, you work in a team and you know, we might be an, only be a team of six. So I think I know you really well, but it's going beyond that, isn't it? And really understanding this individual as the human being that they are. 
human beings are messy and complex and beautiful and amazing, frustrating. We were just talking about kids before we came onto the call. You know, oh my God. <laughs> but that's amazing. And then we, we tend to shy away from that. And I think what what business is kind of locking onto is you've got to embrace that somehow. It's scary, it's horrible, but so is ignoring it. If you ignore that, then you hear all the frustrations yeah. that you're seeing, you know, things like, and I apologize for using these cliches and buzzwords, but the great resignation and quiet quitting and all those kind of things, those are emotional problems. Those are relationship problems. They're not logical problems. A process is not gonna fix those things. The process might contribute or a new system might contribute, but fundamentally, there's a relationship that's gone bad there, and that needs to be looked at. That's a really interesting point for me, you know, and I, and I think about this a lot, and I know people might think, well, you're a bit sad if that's what you're thinking about all the time, but I do, I genuinely think about this. And we talk about the great resignation, and the way I see it is that, uh, you know, we got so close to to death, if you like, uh, with the whole lockdown experience that we had this opportunity as human beings to to reflect and to 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 challenge and reprioritize, uh, recalibrate our priorities. And I think a lot of people came out of that thinking, hey, what is important to me? Well, what is important to me is I spend a third of my life at work. And when I go to work, I want to work in an organization or in a team where I feel valued, appreciated, I feel connected with other people. And if I don't, hey, I'm prepared to move away. And that's what sort of drove the great resignation for me. Absolutely. I think circumstances, and, and I'll, I'll come back to that word in a second, but circumstances like the pandemic and various other things have forced us to look at look through a magnifying glass of what's going on. Yeah. What happened after that is some people chose to take action based on what they saw. Some people didn't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the people that didn't, it's where that misalignment, and that's, I think, we you know, built up frustration, um, illness, all sorts of issues, mental health stuff, where you don't take action. That's generally where things explode, like the great resignation, like quiet quitting. It kind of it either goes inward, which is generally quiet quitting. I appreciate these are terms that people not be familiar with, or outwards, like the great resignation. Well, well I've had enough. I'm off. Both of these are forms of uh, opting out, you know, for anybody who's not, who, who doesn't understand these terms. And they are buzzwords that have come in uh, lately. They're not scientific, but they, they do describe a, a very real concept that's happening right now. So great resignation is where we've experienced the highest level of turnovers across all industries and some industries more than others. Uh, we've experienced more uh, turnover across the world uh, than we had had in modern times. Uh, and the quiet quitting is when people actually just do the very bare minimum. Them. They they don't they don't go out they don't thrive in your organisation they're very capable of doing that but they just don't feel that they want to anymore uh, they've almost given up in that sense so that's what uh, you're talking about isn't it Colin uh, with these two terms I think they're very very important terms we need to analyse these they're very important because in some ways they're actually um, I saw this I heard a discussion a little while ago they're a reflection of what was happening in the organisation but it's now happening to the individual. So organizations have always got rid of people. Organizations have always treated people, you know, inflicted change on people, on, on their teams, on their, on their, their departments. So this kind of emotional response has been the organization to the people. Now what's happening is people are recognizing I can do that to the organization. Yeah. And again, they're both emotional responses to a situation because we say organizational company or business, but it's still people. It's still people. They're still a, it's still just a group of people that are making decisions, making choices. 
uh, behaving in a certain way. So it's it's fascinating. You know, it's all deep psychology and stuff, but it still comes back to how do you feel? What do you want to do about it? It still comes down to that kind of, like you said, deepening that understanding, being curious about what's going on, and that doesn't happen overnight. No, I'm, I've been I've been with my um, wife Claire for twenty. Yeah, I better get it right. If she listens to this, twenty six years, <laughs> and we're still discovering things about each other. It's, it's an ongoing. That's if you are constantly curious, and I think that constant curiosity is what is also termed as a growth mindset. And all great leaders will have this growth mindset where they are constantly trying to find out more about themselves or the, the people around them, even if they've been married to them for twenty six years. You know what I find really fascinating right now. So. You know, we've we've talked about the quiet quitting and the great resignation, and you quite rightly have talked about. You know, before it was the organisation doing it to the people, now it's people doing it to the organisation. So we've almost had this groundswell movement uh, from the human beings that go to work, uh, and almost uh, sort of uh, influencing now how organisations choose to respond. And what I'm finding in the work that I do is, you still have you have got those organizations who have really pivoted and are really agile and uh, have really sort of gone deep down in, inside their psychology and said, hey, we need to behave differently as an organization in this modern uh, economy, the modern world in which we exist, in this modern way of thinking. We need to adapt to that to get the very best out of our people. And I love working with those organizations. But unfortunately, there's still a large amount, large number of organisations out there that uh, are so traditionalist in their response, in their thinking, that uh, what they do outwardly, they will talk about, hey, we're bringing about change. Hey, we are talking about diversity, inclusion. Hey, we're talking about, you know, I, I don't know, sort of uh, layered down leadership. But actually what they're doing is a very mechanistic approach to things. They're changing policies, they're changing processes, but they are not changing mindset. They're not connecting with their people. And that always seems a step too far for some organisations. You know, it's almost like, mm, I'm not quite prepared. I'm, I'm not brave enough to go to that level where, you know, I create a, a culture of trust. And, and I know that that requires uh, some level of uh, uh, lifting of inhibitions or some level of vulnerability being shared and you know, very humans kind of stuff because we're very complex uh, beings. So some organizations outwardly seem to be changing an awful lot, but actually all they're talking about is the rhetoric uh, and the mechanisms of policies or practices, but that's not enough. When you think about how human beings are built, it, what you just described makes sense. We have been conditioned to think, particularly to get stuck in the what I call the age of how and the age of what. The age of what came first. What are we doing? What are we doing? Let's get better at what we're doing, improving efficiencies, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Then we kind of particularly work shifted to the age of how. It's important how we do it, the way we treat people, you know, things like agile and those types of methodologies came along, still focused on ways of working, but brought a small element of the human being into things. But that's been happening for 80 90 years and then the, the how's been 40 50 years yeah the last 10 years or so we've moved into what i call the age of why so like the simon sinek well why is that important we're getting a bit deeper we start to look at why do we do things why why is that important to us why does that matter to us so but that's relatively new it feels like it's been around for a while but that is still relatively new so people are still fighting against decades of conditioning 
And that's really hard to break out of. I'm, I've lived, I worked, saying to you before, I worked 20 years in IT in change. And I still personally struggle with change. You know, try and get me to get a new pair of slippers and I'll resist like nobody's business. <laughs> there are certain things that we just, that's just, whoa, we just resist with all good natures. And there's other reasons we resist it because of personal risk, personal safety or ego and all those other kind of psychological stuff. Where those companies you described as the ones that are actually thinking about things, intentionally leaning into the human element, they're the ones I think that are starting to realize that beyond the why is the who factor. Mm. The proper, which I think is all the mindset stuff, all the really deep stuff, that's where the real sustainable answers are, are in the who. When we talk about who am I? Who, who am I? So the why I love the Simon Sinek stuff, but there comes a point where it's limiting. So most of the time, if I ask a client, why, why are you doing what you're doing? They'll turn around and say, for my kids. Yeah. Standard responses. But what does that mean? What does that mean? And when you ask them that, it's like you very much get, uh, because that's the decent thing. I, I want my kids to be around or me to be around. It doesn't really go much further. You can keep asking why and so on and get a little bit, but really what, needs to happen is they need to understand who they are right now and why that matters. And I think that's the fundamental change, Colin, isn't it? You know, I'm glad you've talked about the who, because I think we have moved through that, we've transitioned through that whole why phase and Simon Sinek's, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're talking about why. And uh, But now it's all about the human beings and the human beings is around who. And for me, what who means is who is working here uh, how do we value them? It leans into the whole concept of diversity and inclusion. I get so frustrated around diversity and inclusion because we are saying the same things now that we were saying 40 years ago when I first joined the police service. There's very little difference. The only difference is the language that we use. But essentially the strategies come out as the very same. So for me, clearly they're not working. Uh, and, and that's because we were focusing on the what. And we may have said it, uh, talked about the, the why. We've certainly talked about the how, but we've never truly talked about who. Uh, and for me, if we really hone in on what that means, it also talks to me about who, who are we as an organisation? What is our reputation? What is our brand? What is our image? What is our personality as an organisation? Uh, and that for me is truly understanding and doing the work around the values because far too many organizations will, you know, have pretty posters uh, on their walls with all these incredible values on, but they don't live up to those values. Um, and for me, uh, it, it we need to challenge every aspect. And so if let's, let's just go into recruitment. Why not recruit people based upon whether their values align with the values of the organization and not worry too much about the technical skills, Yeah, have a minimum of technical skills, but then teach them the rest of the technical skills once they're in the organization. But if they are aligned to your values, they are more likely to work to a higher standard. But this concept requires an awful lot of courage and uh, risk appetite from the organization in the first place. Because most organizations will look at core competencies, minimum qualifications, technical skills, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not many out there are recruiting people just based on their values and who they are as people. Values is a great area to explore this sort of topic because it kind of gets 
blended down to the, you know, things like integrity and trust and honesty. And it's like, what do those mean? Exactly. And this is where, exactly as you're saying, opening up dialogue about values or what's important or your experiences is where the real value, to, to, to excuse the pun, um, it, it is. If you take, for example, you know, I like to think that honest, I, I'm an, generally honest, I'll talk my mind, I'll be kind about it, but I'll talk my mind. I've also, I won't lie, I've booked train tickets for my family and because my 17-year-old daughter is under five foot, I know I can get away with booking her as a kid and save myself 40, 50, 70 quid, depending on where we're travelling. But honesty is something important to me, but I'm blatantly lying to get something cheaper under certain circumstances. But I would never, despite some of my friends, I would never pirate a video, a film or a TV show. Yeah. Because I love creative. I'm a big geek. I still, you know, I still feel pain from the Firefly. That's a deep cut there for any geeks that are out there. That that didn't get renewed for a season because people pirated it. So that to me, I would never do that. But I would, I would lie about my child's age to save a bit of money on a train. That's the complexity of things like honesty. Yeah. You don't say we're honest, we want honest people, because that's not how human beings... It's about understanding what honesty actually means, yeah. Volkswagen had honesty as one of its values, and yet look how much, look what it did about its emissions test and the bullying it did to enforce its, to make its engineers cheat. Enron, Enron, one of the key proponents of shared values, had integrity and communication, and yet had fraudulent behaviour through its... Shared values don't work when they're blanded out to those kind of beige areas. You've got to, exactly as you said, you know, recruitment is a key area to start the dialogue about what are you experiencing? What what happens in these experiences? What do you do here? And there's no right or wrong, but you will find out if through that conversation you can work together, if you can overcome challenges together, if you can learn new skills together. That's where the, the value is. Um, is in those conversations. I uh, I actually proved this point. I mean, it's, it's it's not scientific, so I can't absolutely say it was a point that was proved, but it certainly worked on that occasion. So I came across a, a, a GP's practice that had struggled historically over like two, 20, 30 years with A, staff retention, but also the quality of their staff. Uh, there was constant um, backbiting in the surgery, and there was constant tension in the surgery. People were leaving. Now, obviously, we need to do some work around the leadership of that surgery, which we did. But when it came to the recruitment, I said, let's have a look at your recruitment process. And it was like any other recruitment process, a set of questions based around competencies and technical skills. And that was it. I said, OK, are you brave enough to do something slightly different? Yes, of course, you're going to have some minimum qualifications, especially for the medical staff that you bring in, your, maybe your practice manager or maybe your nurse, etc. But beyond that, have you got the appetite to look at the human being and, and test where their emotional intelligence sits? Because you're a people-facing organisation, you're supposed to be a nurturing organisation. So wouldn't it be a good idea to test a level of emotional intelligence? So we did that. So every single amp- applicant uh, that was coming in, and they were for senior posts, we tested their emotional intelligence. And um, it became part of the paper sift. So they, when they reached a certain threshold of emotional intelligence, anybody above that threshold got interviewed. And as it, as it happened, we, for example, for the, the, uh, the, the senior nurse role, five applicants, and only two of them reached this threshold of emotional intelligence. They interviewed these two people, hired one, 
and I've now got, uh, they tell me, I only met with them uh, last week, they've got their experience some of the better times than they've had over the last 20, 30 years because they've got the right people in the right place doing the right thing at the right time. And actually, all of those things that you're talking about in terms of relationship building, yeah, it's gone beyond just being a team. It is now a set of friends working together who know each other. And consequently, what's happened is they've got this foundation of trust. So this is this is a real good example. It's a minute example in the in the great scheme of things, but it's a great example of demonstrating what adjustment to your recruitment based around the who uh, can do for you as an organization or as a team. Uh, and I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that, that that is the right way to go, particularly as you, you talk about we're living in the era of who. We, we've got to live in it um, because the alternative is to go backwards. It's not we won't stay where we are. The external challenges are too much. We will go backwards. You're seeing that in organisations. You're seeing that in the market now. You know, despite what, you know, go back to 2008 when, you know, recessions and various other things, the companies, the organizations, the people that came through that were the ones that lent on each other, the ones that would continue to invest, whether through money or time or energy, but they continue to value the human element. And those are the organizations and people that came through it. You know, you're talking there about the GP. I think what, what I come up against quite often is, well, it's hard to do that, isn't it? It's hard to be brave enough to do the people stuff. And the thing I always say is, it's hard to not. There's this belief that if you don't do that, it's easier. I'll give you an example. Um, working with a client not that long ago, and this will be a scenario that I'm sure many people recognize where they had what they called, and I hate this phrase, but what they had, uh, a rock star, a key member of the team that was crucial to certain contracts, but was behaving poorly and was impacting the morale of the rest of the team. So they ignored it because it was too risky to upset them because they couldn't afford to lose them. They tolerated the poor performance because they, they didn't want to risk it and because it was too hard, it was too risky to tackle it. So I said to them, okay, you've got integrity as one of your key values. So you're, you're saying it's hard to tackle it. You're saying it's easy to ignore it. One of three things is happening with you ignoring it. Either your team is thinking you're a coward, you're all cowards, I'm putting this bluntly, you're all cowards, or they're thinking you're incompetent, or they're thinking you put profit before people. Which one of those is it? And tell me whether one of those is not just as hard to deal with, to face up to, as doing the right thing. Because there is no other option in that scenario. If you're tolerating poor performance for profit, you're either a coward, incompetent, or you're putting profit above people. So that's not easy. That's not easy either. It's horrible, but that's not easy. So it's hard either way. And and here's the thing with, with with this lack of courage, this lack of leadership courage, because that's what we need, isn't it? When people talk about it being too hard, yes, of course it is hard. It's never going to be easy. But as you quite rightly say, it's actually even harder if you don't do the right thing. If you don't live in accordance with the values of the organisation, if you don't have those difficult conversations, make those tough decisions, it's actually all you're doing is creating a problem for later on. But if both of them are hard, what can you see beyond each hard and which looks better? So if, you can, if it's going to be hard either way, which path has the more likelihood of a better reward, for want of a better expression, a better experience at the, at, on the other side of it? And that's where the courage is needed to hold true to, that's what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming for what's on the other side of hard. So I'm going to have to go through hard anyway. That's where I need courage to, to, 
to really get to where I want to get to, we need to get to. And I, I think this is similar to a person, one, one individual having limiting beliefs. Now, we all have them, don't we? I have huge imposter syndrome and, you know, despite all the things that I'm doing, I still wake up sometimes and think, oh, I can't do all of this. I get overwhelmed and all of these kind of things. I, you know, I, I'm an introvert and I'm not particularly comfortable going out. Although I can speak from a stage and everything else and do that on a regular basis, I don't go out and network with individuals. So we have these limiting beliefs and you know that one of the ways that you challenge your limiting beliefs is say, okay, let's have a look at this belief and the belief might be I'm not good enough. Well, let's look at this as a, an evidence-based belief. List down all the evidence that you can possibly list of when you've not been good enough. And the truth of it is that uh, you can only list maybe two, three, four, if any at all. But when you flip it and you say, okay, I, I can do things and you know I can achieve and you make it a list of that and you, you have this incredible list. For me, when it comes to this organization on leadership courage, when, when, when organizations don't have the courage to challenge those individuals or do the hard work that we're talking about to get to the people stuff, it's really about, okay, so tell me about all the stuff that's hard. What is it that's so hard? Make a list of all of that. Now, if we don't do that, what is what, what are all the threats and the risks and the, the challenges that you're going to face? And some of those will be it costs more because, you know, you've nurtured this talent, whoever that talent is, you've spent money on them. And as a consequence of them opting out, whether it's quiet quitting or whether it's through the great resignation, you're now going to have to spend the same amount of money getting somebody else in and recruiting them and training them, et cetera, et cetera. So you're doubling, doubling your costs. Not to mention the the increased pressure on all of the people that are remaining and the, the increased likelihood of one of them burning out. So you might be spending even more money. And what I do very often is sit down when I'm approached by a leader who asks me about, you know, uh, who tells me it's too hard. I'll go through this exercise just to just to help them understand. Actually, yes, it might be hard. Both are hard. Both paths are hard, as you've rightly said, but one actually costs a lot more. And if you are into your KPR, as if you are looking at your bottom lines, uh, and then maybe take into account your opportunity costs as well. A lot of organisations right now are paying a mortgage on a five-bedroom house with a 10-acre garden, except they've decided to lock the doors to three of the bedrooms and trash three-quarters of the garden, yet they're still paying the mortgage for that size property. I love that analogy. It's, it's not necessarily about building an extension. It's about unlocking what you've already got. Sometimes you need to bolt on it, you know, refurbish the kitchen or do something different. But actually, most of the time, you're not using what you've already got. And that's not a logical problem. To, I'm going to sound like a broken record. That's an emotional situation. There's a reason you're not going in that door to that room. There's a reason that you, you've, you've let your garden overgrow. And it, you, you need to suck it up. You need to breathe a bit easy. You need to accept that, not dwell on it. You need to accept it and see the reasons for it and then try and improve it. None of this stuff happens overnight. It takes practice. It takes commitment. It takes willingness to get it wrong and learn from it. It takes openness and transparency and all those other things. But that's, it's about shifting the experience. The, the experience culture is another word that does get overused but fundamentally it's what are you enjoying and what are you tolerating you know what right now what are you experiencing how do you want that to change and just keep asking questions like that a lot of the a lot of the time leadership leaders in particular 
particularly authority leaders, rank leaders, hierarchical leaders, shoulder immense pressure for solving things. Step one is just surface things. Be brave enough to surface what's really going on, to make sure that you're actually working, looking at, exploring the right things at the right time. Again, as an IT person, the amount of time we would patch things, bug fix, rather than look at the root cause, then that builds up what we call technical debt, exactly the scenario you were talking about. And technical debt comes to a point where you go, this is too expensive to maintain. We're going to have to throw this away and restart. I call that the sticking plaster approach because, you know, we look for symptoms all the time. And, and you know, as these symptoms start emerging, we'll just get in there, we'll put a Band-Aid on it or we'll put a Band-Aid. Eventually, you've got to get to a point where you've got to do the operation you've got to get stuck into the root cause and say, what's causing all these symptoms? That's what you're talking about right now. And, and, and when you do that surgery, when you get in there and you get, get right down to the root cause, the pathway might be difficult, but once you've done it, you've done it. And then you can have this incredible transformation in your organization, your team, your culture, call it what you will. But then it's the maintenance is nowhere near as hard as you think the initial inertia is. So for me, it's about overcoming the inertia. That's the difficult part. And then maintaining a level of momentum, which is much easier. And if you've got the right culture, you've embedded the right culture, the momentum is that much easier. So, you know, there's this analogy, isn't there? I don't know if you've ever heard it, Colin, that uh, turning, changing the organizational culture is like turning an oil tank around. It takes forever. That's, that's what something that was repeatedly told to me when I was a leader. And I don't think it's anywhere near as difficult as that. I, yes, it's challenging, but I think it can be done quicker or certainly we can break that initial inertia a lot quicker. And the rest of it's momentum for me. So many organizations want to jump to the doing stage. We know that we've got poor morale or we've got low performance or we've got people that are struggling or uh, mind, you know, wellness issues. Therefore, we want to do this. And usually, not always, but usually it comes from a good intent. But it's not necessary. It's, it's usually tackling symptoms. Wellness is a prime example. Mental health is a prime example of our team is stressed. Therefore, we are going to send them on a spa day to make them feel better. They're going to come out of the spa day feeling slightly better and then straight back into whatever it was they were experiencing before. It's it's not it's not looking at, it's not being curious about what's going on. You've got to have that time to focus in on something of value. You know, you need to explore the need for change before you do the change. And leaders struggle because they think they know what the right answer is. Quite often, it's not the same as what the team members think. Exactly. And you've got to, you've got to open that up. You've got to open that up. It doesn't mean you have to listen to every opinion, every fact and get confused. You've got to be able to sift through that, but you've got to find something that creates curiosity, that creates a bit of excitement, renewed energy. And I think this is where we, we need to challenge that traditional, that traditional image of what a leader is. And, you know, autom automatically we get this image of this autocratic leader. I think the days of the autocracy of leadership are gone. Uh, and leadership has to be about democracy, has to be about affiliation with the people that you work with, has to be about the coaching conversations that you have. Uh, and you're absolutely right. When it comes to organisation, don't rush into the doing. Don't just bring in a well-being consultant to, to give a pep talk to your staff, because that, again, is just a sticking plaster. Get stuck in, start looking at the root culture, uh, start looking at 
what big decisions need to be made to resolve that and and be prepared to have the uncomfortable conversations that you're going to have as part of that cultural transformation uh, and i've had this plenty of time when i've worked with organizations around you know culture diagnostics and the you know, very, very challenging conversations that some of their leaders need to hear from the focus groups that we've held. And that's part of the change, isn't it? The autocratic, the command and control style is what I call the inflict. There are st- there's not many, but there are still some organisations. Twitter is a prime example at the moment where things are being inflicted upon people. Mm. Inflicting never works. It might feel good in the short term, but it never works. What's happened is the styles moved more towards invite Let's invite you in. Let's, we, we want you to be, we want your opinion on this. You know, we would love you to be part of this. That's a good, good step. But ultimately, and you know, the organizations you've described and the ones I love working with are those that have recognized actually the, the best way, but the scariest way is to involve people, involving them, not engaging, not getting buy-in, all that rubbish, but involving mm. people because that's a human word. Because there's no constraint on that word, which is scary for some. Because it means giving away some leadership power. And if you've got a culture where you've got, where leadership equals power, then you're going to struggle. My best advice is face into that. You know, you don't have to start with, we want you to be involved in restructuring the whole organization. You can start with, you know, the big topics of the day are things like flexibility at work, working patterns, all those kind of things. And I remember, I call it a discussion, but it was an argument on LinkedIn a while ago with a a recruiter for finance industry who posted, I don't understand what's going on. We were struggling to recruit for these finance jobs. We're now offering flexible working. You can work from home every Friday and people still don't want the jobs. And I said, working from home every Friday is not flexible working. What you need to do is understand why people want to work flexibly. That's different for different people. Some people, it's kids. They want to be there. So others, it might be carers for their parents. Others, it might be hobbies, stress. Who knows? But unless you're willing to open up the complexity of that conversation, you're not going to appeal to the types of people you think you're appealing to. And they were scared to do that. Well, we're offering this. If they don't like it, tough. And it's like, but you've already said you're not getting the recruits you want. Yeah. Therefore, it's not working. So it is scary, but you've got to involve people. You've got to. Otherwise, you will just keep going around in circles and chasing your tail. And it takes us right back to the very start of this conversation, understanding that human beings are beautifully complicated. I always describe human beings as being perfectly imperfect, and that's the reality of it. And every single human being will have different needs, different thoughts, different visions, uh, different experiences, different pathways. Uh, uh, and that, for me, is a truth around diversity, uh, looking beyond the obvious and getting down into something that's unspoken sometimes. Colin, I want to thank you for sharing some time with me. It's been fantastic catching up with you. And uh, I know that we came from the same spot. It's, it's just nice to talk to somebody else who just gets exactly what we're talking about and be able to, you know, get that. Sometimes it's a shift in language or something like that, but just getting down into that deeper conversation. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed that. Really useful. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.